Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded February 18th and 19th, 2023. Well, on February 8th of this year, Dutch police presented new evidence to the District Court of The Hague regarding the July 17th, 2014 downing of Malaysia Airlines flight MH17. Upon entering their evidence, the Dutch government and an Australian investigator on the case admitted to having held American military satellite images from the court, the press, and defense lawyers throughout the two-year trial for the wrongful deaths of the 298 people who perished aboard that ill-fated flight. John Helmer is a journalist and author who spent decades living in and reporting from Russia. The principal behind the web's news site Dances with Bears, Helmer has too been a professor of political science, sociology, and journalism, and has served as advisor to governments at the highest levels. Among his many book titles are Scripal in Prison, The Man Who Knows Too Much About Russia, The Jackal's Wedding, American Power, Arab Revolt, his latest Australian fascism, How It Destroyed the Courts, and The Lie That Shot Down MH17. His recent article on the latest from The Hague and the MH17 disaster is U.S. satellite photos revealed at last. Now they incriminate the Dutch police, prosecutors, and judges in the MH17 show trial. John Helmer in the first half. And BC's Ministry of Environment and Climate Change Strategy has granted permits for the Ministry of Forests to begin a spring spraying campaign across swathes of Vancouver Island. The plan is to use 4A48B, better known as BTK. Dr. Jennifer Tynan is a physician and radiology specialist. Jennifer is also a mom whose child's school is in one of the proposed spray zones, and she serves as spokesperson for Communities United for Clean Air, a grassroots initiative to stop the spray. Jennifer Tynan and fighting to keep Vancouver Island's air clear of BTK in the second half. But first, John Helmer and the JIT's latest shot in the West's war against Russia. Well, welcome back to the program, John. Thank you for having me, Chris. Well, you know, it's always my pleasure. Now, John, I got to admit uh, to being a bit confused about the Higgs legal process in the MH17 case and and why is it having briefings yet? I mean, long after its verdict was determined in pointing blame in that case. Now, off air, you were telling me this has more to do with uh, spreading the blame around and, and applying something they call a functional copper. Uh, co-perpetration, trying to pin this essentially on the leadership in Russia. But doesn't that uh, take for granted? I mean, isn't this just a disingenuous way of reinforcing what you've described as a kangaroo court there already, reinforcing their their predetermined, I would argue, verdict that Russia is guilty for downing MH17 when not everybody agrees with that? That's a big mouthful to respond to. And you're right, you're right, you're right, Chris. First of all, um, this press conference in which the prosecutors, the investigating team that had worked since 2014, controlled by the Ukrainian Secret Service, the SBU and the Dutch police, um, it was their so-called wrap-up final press conference. In fact, it's a curtain raiser because the Dutch prime minister Uh, Prime Minister Rutte has introduced back in 2020 a Dutch state case against the Russian state in the European Court of Human Rights. So they want that to continue 
and uh, the, it's been suspended in the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, about 9,000 cases of relating to the Ukraine and Crimea have, uh, are still uh, proceeding in that court, but essentially suspended, including about four cases uh, of lawyers representing victims of the Malaysia Airlines MH17 flight that was shot down in July 2014. So it's a curtain raiser. It's not a curtain dropper on that proceeding. But even more uh, egregiously calculated, more propagandistic, is the attempt to continue the case and the vilification of President Putin, uh, which has been announced by uh, the German who runs the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen. And what she's done recently is to have proposed a UN or an European Commission-sponsored international criminal tribunal uh, to prosecute what she calls Russian war crimes in the Ukraine. That tribunal, uh, if it ever gets off the ground, will include the MH17 case, but it will continue and exaggerate and propagandize uh, everything the other side says, starting from the Zelensky regime in Lvov, um, to attack and vilify and propagandize against Russia forever. And that's an attempt that would duplicate the, uh, the NATO allies' uh, att uh, attempt to put uh, Slobodan Milosevic on trial. And you remember that he died in that captivity before the trial ended uh, for his alleged war crimes in, in the former Yugoslavia, uh, defending Serbia from a NATO attack. Yeah, resistance is the highest crime, uh, it seems to me. Well, uh, von der Leyen will get her wish if Kamala Harris has anything to say about it. She was in uh, uh, Munich uh, the last few days at the defense uh, conference, CONFAB, there, and she gave a, a little stand-up. It was stirring and going on about Russian war crimes and that they will pay. They will pay. And I'm wondering, is this is this what she's referring to? She says, oh, it's been an established, we have a process establishing Russian war crimes and, and they will pay and pointing her finger at President Putin at the same time. Is this, do you know, uh, uh, connected to the von der Leyen's, to von der Leyen's opinion, as, as you repeated, and the court process in The Hague? It's very difficult to take seriously Miss Harris's statements. She <laughs> makes incredibly stupid statements, whether she's on the Korean border, uh, whether she's in Poland, wherever she's standing, there's a disconnect between her brain and reality. But, but in Harris, this case, in this case, though, John, she said that, that, that this has been established. And that's what sort of made me prick up my ears. I, I know what you're saying about she's a, her, she's a bit of a moon bat. But this time she goes, we, there is a process that we, the government of the United States of America, presumably, have established. So I'm wondering if that's, you know, the underpinnings to if the, the Hague and von der Leyen are sort of part of the the infrastructure of bringing these charges forward. Yes, it's a cover story. It, it's repeating the process that was an illegal one at the beginning. Um, as Christopher Black, the uh, distinguished Canadian war crimes tribunal attorney has pointed out, um, Harris is unlikely to be uh, 
the vice president of the United States by the time anything like this gets started. And she's going to follow um, the other uh, moonbats, as you call them, of uh, ex-Prime Minister Truss and Annalena Baerbock. Uh, Annalena Baerbock uh, was tr competing with, uh, with uh, Kamala Harris in moon battiness at the Munich Security <laughs> Conference when she was asked uh, what she meant by regime change as an objective of, of the war against Russia. And she said something to the effect that uh, President Putin, of course, she wouldn't use his title and probably didn't call him Mr. I haven't got the transcript right in front of me, but Baerbock, the trampoline champion of Germany, um, said uh, he would have to uh, change his position 360 degrees before. You, <laughs> uh, and then that caused laughter uh, all over Russia, as everybody noted that Ms. Baerbock, the foreign minister of Germany, doesn't understand basic geometry um, and that 360 degrees, uh, 360 degree turn, what was a laughable display of her incompetence. Well, as a it, as a trampoline championship, she must know what a pirouette is, but uh, maybe it was just a lapse. But uh, as not far as she's the, been falling on her head. Well, for with in regards to regime change, though, she just announced. I, I just saw it today that uh, she, I don't know where this even came from, but should the government fall? in Germany that she has put forward that she, uh, and she's currently that we should say uh, with the green party and uh, serves as a foreign minister in the coalition government of uh, Olaf Scholz, that she would put herself forward to be chancellor. So she's, she um, she's as would. ambitious as Kamala. Uh, indeed. She has a uh, slightly more electoral prospect uh, than Kamala Harris. And th this putting herself forward as chancellor uh, is indeed an indication of the Green Party ambition and what uh, my colleague George Eliasson has been researching as the scheme of the Greens in direct alliance with certain factions in Washington to advance themselves uh, as the most loyal warriors on the US behalf against Russia in Germany. The, the trouble for people like Baerbock and Habeck, the deputy chancellor, is that kingmakers very rarely uh, get elected as kings. And uh, the result of the Berlin election a few days ago, a rerun of an illegal uh, court declared illegal election 2021, seems to indicate that the Green Party uh, has peaked already in Berlin which for good reason ought to be one of their best performing uh, constituencies. And they've dropped almost a percentage point in the last election, while the Christian Democratic Union gained 10 percentage points. What the Berlin election shows you is a dynamic in Germany. Well-off children, that's to say people under the age of 20, but capable of voting, well-off children vote green. Well-off children vote Baerbock as chancellor. But well-off children in Germany constitute the population that are shielded from all of the misfortune of everyone else. Their parents house them. They're not having to pay mortgages. Their parents pay the electricity bill. They're not feeling cold. All they do, 
these uh, uh, these young green voters, these trampoline champions aged 18, uh, what they do is have fun. And the, they have fallen hook, line and sinker for the green fabrication. But if the Berlin election extends to the rest of Germany, the Greens are on their way out. They've yeah, peaked. I, I- I can't imagine the, the the Green Party and, and people here in Canada might not understand that they've been a fervent pro-war party for quite some time now. I'm of an age that I rem- remember when they were against the cruise missiles when they were coming out and they, they were big in the anti-nuclear movement uh, way back when. But those are days of the past. As far as uh, uh, George Eliasson goes, yes, that's your yours and George's uh, two-hand program, War of the Worlds at TNT Radio. Uh, people can get a link, I suppose, at your site to that. I was listening to it this morning and he was talking about how that the green party also is in favor of, of a, a widespread deindustrialization of germany uh, if that's the case i don't i don't think even the the teenagers in berlin are going to be rushing out to cast votes on uh, uh, some sort of pastoral future that the green party is envisioning uh, no, <laughs> the short answer <laughs> is that there are civilized and normal people in Germany, and there are people, um, let's hope there's a majority of them among German voters whose heads connect to their pockets and not to their uh, their uh, smartphones. Uh, and uh, the green voter is has reached the peak of support Um, the union voters, the SDP voters, the East German voters, uh, the voters of the industrial cities where uh, the major arms producers, Thyssenkrupp, for example, and others, Krauss Maffe, where they're headquartered, uh, there has been a, a visible increase in the green vote until now. Uh, there isn't the confidence uh, on in the financial markets in Germany, Frankfurt, for example, that the arms manufacturers that build the Leopard tank that's being shipped to the Ukraine, or the missiles, uh, or the uh, infantry vehicles and other military equipment the Germans have, have committed to supplying the war. There isn't the confidence in the cities where the workers build those weapons that the war will go well for their weapons. Uh, their share prices of these companies are going down. And if share price and dividend uh, and profitability go down in Germany, then the union workers, the unionized workers, the union managements and leaderships of these groups will, uh, will change their votes. And if anything, uh, this bodes well for the Christian Democratic Union, the so-called right, plus the uh, alternative for Germany, the AFD party, which also did slightly better in uh, Berlin. It's doom for the left, however, the so-called left. Well, let's talk a little bit about German politics in a minute. But before, I don't want to leave Russia just yet and their culpability as seen by The Hague and the United States naturally and, and everyone else. But there's sort of there's a timeline here of crimes. And I'm wondering if these are being cited by The Hague as well. The uh, the Skripal, uh, the so-called Skripal poisoning in Britain, uh, MH17, of course, uh, the Navalny, the uh, dissident in, in still in jail, I believe, in, in Russia uh, and, and Crimea and everything. Everything else, of course, but does the Skripal case, is this 
cited as well, or is this something that has just disappeared down the memory hole as far as, I mean, this is a constant pattern of, of shooting accusations at Russia that, that have been going on for the last uh, you know, eight or so years. Um, what about the scripts? Is that a figuring? Golly, Chris, you're, golly, Chris, you're, you're raising uh, all the, all the bad ghosts of Christmas past. Aren't you? <laughs> yep, yeah. uh, and I, I don't want to disappoint listeners uh, and act like Scrooge here, but you're quite right. Humbug. These are go- <laughs> yes, hum- <laughs> but, but uh, yes, you're right. Uh, each one of these operations, the so-called Novichok poisoning of uh, Yulia and Sergei Skripal and the, the subsequent death of Dawn Sturgis, still under investigation in a couple of weeks' time, uh, the UK inquiry, the so-called public inquiry into the cause of Dawn Sturgis's death will uh, have a new session. Um, each of these uh, uh, operations continues to be stoked by one or other of the NATO allies as a stick with which to beat Russia as Russia advances across the Ukrainian battlefield and engages directly in war with the British, whose Challenger tanks are on the way to the Ukraine, who, uh, with the Germans, whose Leopard tanks are on their way to the Ukraine, and so on. The, uh, the Norwegians, the United States, and so on. Each one of these ghosts is, is puffed up as part of the general propaganda offensive to uh, demonize the leadership of Russia as if it's only one evil man. This is a nonsense. It's also a falsification of not only the way Russia, uh, the Russian democracy works, uh, but uh, the particular role that the president of Russia plays in uh, running the country. The Skripal affair, the Novichok affair, the Navalny case, and by the way, uh, I should be uh, uh, telling you in advance that listeners should watch for the big scoop that Lucy Commissar of New York will shortly publish uh, exposing the Navalny hoax uh, just before the Oscar ceremonies um, uh, uh, launch the question or the issue, the famous envelope opening on whether the documentary film about Navalny called Navalny will mm-hmm. win the Oscar for not, uh, it's up for best documentary film. Um, Lucy presents a very vivid case of why it should be up for the best special effects, sound mixing, and cartoon animation prizes. Uh, The falsification of the Navalny story is being stoked by by the U.S. film uh, industry as well. So what does all this add up to? It adds up to propagandizing forever until, quotes, Russia's defeated until, quotes, there's a regime change in the Kremlin, not a 360-degree change, as Ms. Baerbock seems to count. <laughs> well, if, if if the White Helmets can win, then why not? Uh, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Grill Radio. I'm speaking today with John Helmer. John's a journalist and author. He spent decades living in and reporting from Russia. He's the principal behind the web news site Dances with Bears. He's also been a professor of political science and sociology and journalism, and he served as advisor to governments at the highest levels. Among his many book titles are Scripal in Prison, The Man Who Knows Too Much About Russia, The Jackal's Wedding, American Power Arab Revolt, and his latest Australian 
fascism, how it destroyed the courts, and the lie that shot down MH17. Before we leave, I know I promised we'd leave it, but let's not leave it just yet. MH17, you've written an article about what's going on in The Hague. U.S. satellite photos revealed at last. Now they incriminate the Dutch police prosecutors and judges in the MH17 show trial. John, I mean, briefly, the, the, the satellite, the famous satellite pictures that were promised by John Kerry when he was uh, still in government were going to prove that Russia was responsible for shooting down MH17, uh, a fact, uh, in scare quotes, that the, the Hague has proven to its own satisfaction, if not the rest of the world. Uh, but those satellite photos never showed up. Now, lo and behold, these years later, some sat, some not those satellite photos of Russian weapons shooting down the airplane have uh, appeared, but other ones. Do you want to explain what satellite photos have uh, been finally revealed and what they reveal? Uh, please, to Chris, and it, I hope it doesn't try listeners' patience, uh, since ears don't see. But let me try to ex explain. Uh, the press conference held by the investigators published two satellite pictures, one of truck transporters covered with tarpaulins uh, from Kursk, uh, a military base on the Russian side of the border, mistrust the ex-prime minister of the UK, never understood where the border was, uh, published on the 18th of July, and another set of, uh, another picture at Milerovo, published on the 20th of Ju July. So within hours at Kursk and within days at Milerovo, the US satellite capabilities being demonstrated to show alleged um, book missile uh, transporters similar to those alleged by uh, photographs published by the Ukrainian Secret Services, evidence that the Russians brought in on a truck transporter the missile, fired it at MH17 on the 17th of July, and then raced it back across the border into Russia, proving, they say, not only that the Russians brought the missile in, the Russians ordered it fired, and so forth and so on. That's the core of the evidence in the Dutch prosecution. However, as you rightly said, Chris, as you like, rightly remembered, as we need to remember everybody listening, that John Kerry lied his head off when he said immediately after the shoot down, we have the images, we have the images showing the trajectory, the hit, and so on. He even said on NBC television, I've been a prosecutor. I know how to prosecute on such circumstantial evidence of murder, of calculated Russian murder. That was the case. The Dutch prosecutors and the Ukrainian Secret Service tried to indict and then succeeded in achieving three out of four convictions, except that even Kerry as a liar, a U.S. Senate and pre uh, presidential appointee liar, couldn't have put through a civilized court of law in the United States. Why? Because the circumstantial evidence he referred to didn't exist. And if you had to bring it into court, it had to meet a standard of admissibility, meaning 
it would have to survive a test of forgery. And second, it would have to substantiate the, the proof beyond reasonable doubt. That's the civilized legal standard for proving a case of a, of a crime as grievous as murder. There's no doubt that the passengers, the 298 people killed very sadly uh, out of the air that day were killed. There's no doubt they were uh, the subject of a hostile fire. Who fired? What was fired? And who's culpable? Those issues were never settled in the Dutch court. That court was a show trial. And the satellite evidence was the first independent visual proof offered. Only the Dutch have left both a confidential and an open record that when asked to prove, prove, provide the satellite pictures, the United States refused. Instead, what they did, and this is all documented in the book, what they did was send a memorandum dated in August 2016 to the Dutch, signed by a colonel of the US Army called Stolworthy, and Stolworthy summarized what the evidence from the satellite imagery suggested. It's inadmissible, it's trash. You wouldn't take it near a court if you were a genuine prosecutor from the state of Massachusetts like John Kerry once was. Why? Because the court would laugh you out and the defense attorney would tell you to get out of court and go back to law school. The Stolworthy paper not only wouldn't survive a civilized court in the United States, it didn't, civilize, it didn't survive the, the Dutch military intelligence chief at the time who reported to the JIT, the investigative team, that they, Dutch intelligence, Dutch military intelligence and their partners, Dutch partner, the United States, Dutch partner, NATO. The Dutch military intelligence chief reported that the Dutch intelligence and the partner intelligence did not substantiate the firing of a Russian missile at that aircraft. Now, that occurred, that report spilled out, was leaked, is reported in the book, four weeks after Stolworthy's memorandum. Stolworthy's memorandum was introduced during the court proceeding, but not the Dutch memorandum. In other words, uh, the court proceeding itself manipulated the evidence. And finally, out comes a satellite production from the United States in the final so-called press conference of the investigative team. That proves the US had satellites with that level of resolution above the, the murder scene on the 18th. But the well, fact that's... that they didn't, the fact that they didn't release any photos of it says they either didn't have photos or they did have photos, but the photos didn't show the things that they wanted to, them to show. And so it's still, again, that puts the uh, the onus of who fired this uh, this deadly rocket uh, in question. Again, John, uh, we're fast out of time. Now, you can go to John's website, johnhelmer.net, and 
order his book, The Lie That Shot Down MH17, and his other books as well. John, we'll take it. We'll we'll go to an extended version of this, but for this uh, edition, we're going to break off, and Jennifer Tynan's going to come on and, and talk about the Gypsy Moth, or now called politically correct, retitled Spongy Moth Eradication campaigns, uh, aerial spraying campaign of a bacillus over my hometown and across the, the island of Vancouver Island. Uh, but for for now, John, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'll look forward to the spongy moth next. <laughs> their message always to everybody through all their advertising, all their PR, everything is, we are your friends. And it's like, no, you are not our friends. Friends are not people whose bottom line is how much profit they can make out of you. It is completely different. Guerrilla Radio, knowing who our real friends are since 1999. We're running out of time to put out a fire, fire. And, and welcome back to Guerrilla Radio. Again, I'm speaking with John Helmer. John is a journalist and author. He spent decades living in and reporting from Russia. He's the principal behind the web news site Dances with Bears. He's been a professor of political science, sociology, and journalism. His book titles include Skripal in Prison, The Man Who Knows Too Much About Russia, The Jackal's Wedding, American Power, Arab Revolt, and his latest Australian fascism, How It Destroyed the car- the Courts. Uh, now, John, we, we've been talking about the MH17 case. There's another big case going on, and, and we were talking earlier, too, about the German economy and what's going on in Germany. Well, nothing bigger, I think, has happened economically to Germany in recent times than the destruction of the gas pipelines uh, from Russia supplying them, not just the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which was yet to open, but the Nord Stream 1 pipeline that's been in operation for many years and has bolstered the German economy for a long time. Seymour Hirsch uh, uh, on the 8th of February released a ground-shaking report, at least it's gotten a lot of publicity, pointing the finger directly at uh, the United States for this destruction. The article is how America took out the Nord Stream pipeline. You've been a a sole voice taking issue with Hirsch's, not only his method, but his uh, his findings. Uh, What's what do you what's your problem with with Seymour Hirsch's uh, report? This is the spongy moth version (laughs) attacking the juicy fruit. Uh, I'm really sorry to say that sometimes the moth has it more right than the apple or the apple of everyone else's eye. Uh, This is the story. Seymour Hirsch has never published an investigation, uh, an investigative report on Russia since Russia um, was created out of the Soviet Union, 1990-91. His last, he did one book uh, back in the 1980s on the Soviet air force shootdown of Korean Airlines 007. Otherwise, uh, Hirsch has focused when he was a reporter at AP, when he was a reporter at the New York Times, when he was a reporter at the New Yorker, on principally uh, internal domestic spying in the United States, uh, and on the My Lai incident, which launched his reputation uh, during the Vietnam War, and then subsequently the Israel nuclear weaponry uh, and the uh, wars in the Middle East. Um, his in, his incompetence in Russia um, is demonstrated in the report and in the subsequent interviews he's given 
to uh, his friends and chorus of supporters. Some of them uh, announce that they play golf with him. Some of them announce they play tennis with him. Some of them announce that they were cub reporters or stringers for the New York Times when he was a reporter working for this editor or that editor. It's inside Beltway journalistic self-congratulation, which has blinded many people who ought to know better as investigative reporters to the mistakes Hirsch himself has made uh, and has encouraged them all to demonstrate the one thing they all seem to share, which is less a dedication to truth and more a desire to go home to Big Mama, Alma Mater, the New York Times. Hirsch has repeatedly referred in his interviews to uh, the br brightness and brilliance of New York Times reporters, et cetera, et cetera. And he's dismayed and upset, as they all are, that the mainstream media are ignoring the story. Well, let's go to the story, shall we? All right. All right. Well, and wait, before we get there, John, but to, to be fair to Hirsch now, his story is not about Russia. It's about America. I mean, yes, it's the Russian pipeline, uh, majority owned Russian pipeline, but he's writing about America and his metier, as you mentioned, is the what he calls the the uh, intelligence community or the, the spook uh, spycraft and all that. So just to be fair to him, you know, but at, at any rate. So, yeah, uh, what, what's well, it is about Russia. It is about uh, a war against Russia. And Hirsch's principal objective is to show that President Biden of the United States, Secretary of State Blinken, and Under Secretary of State uh, Victoria Newland, and uh, presidential advisor, President Biden's security advisor, Jake Sullivan, uh, were the perpetrators of an act of war in a, a larger war, which Hirsch goes to some pains to point out, is aimed at Russian gas weaponization. He accepts that as a doctrine. It's false. He goes to the trouble of blaming Putin again, personally, for launching a very bad war. I'm using his terms. I haven't got them right in front of me. P folks can go to the website and see the exact words and the exact references to where uh, Hirsch has said these things. So he is aiming at war. He can't pronounce the Maidan properly, which indicates that he doesn't, his knowledge of the war against Russia, the US war, the NATO war, the European war, the world war against Russia, started uh, this episode back in 2014 with the putsch that removed the elected president of the, of the Ukraine. If he can't pronounce the name of the square, little though that detail is, it's a telling detail. He hasn't heard, he hasn't studied, he hasn't checked sources who pronounce the name of the square, the square near which Deputy Prime Minister of Canada, Christia Freeland, has her own apartment. <laughs> if they can't pronounce the Maidan and call it the Maiden, they aren't on top of the Russian-Ukrainian war properly. But Well, well, but, to be fair, John, for, and I'll say this, 
you know, somebody who has mangled pronunciation on radio during interviews for a very long time, that I'll give him the benefit of a doubt that during during a radio interview that he, you know, he said the wrong thing or whatever, or pronounced something incorrectly. I mean, I can I can forgive him that and not say that he doesn't know anything about Russia. Uh, and he also says that the, the, the source of the pipeline is from northeastern uh, Russia, a northeastern Russian port where clearly it's the northwest. But and he writes that he didn't say that it's in the article. But uh, but his article is titled How America Took Out the Nord Stream Pipeline. So it's about, you know, who blew this thing up, the war and all that, you know, and the whys of it is another thing altogether. But he's making a, a, a straight out claim that now America did this and and this is how they did it. And that's uh, that's isn't it what his piece is about? Yes and no. The open secret and it's no secret. that the U.S. has been behind a campaign to stop Nord Stream 2 uh, from being laid as a pipeline and then operated in Germany. That's that's been clear. The year before, the U.S. and Polish uh, governments uh, got together secretly to attempt to sabotage the laying of the pipe as the vessel, the pipe-laying vessel, was... Uh, threatened by so-called Polish fishing boats. That was the first operation, which I then published as the Bornham Bash back in April of the year before the strike against the detonation of bombs and the strike against both pipelines under the sea between Bornham and the Polish and German borders, uh, the coastlines. It's no secret that the U.S. was involved in the campaign to sanction and stop the operation of the pipeline and compel Germany to stop the licensing, which would have opened the valves and let the gas fully filling uh, Nord Stream 2 at the time uh, start to flow into Germany. That's the open part of the secret. What happened over the year preceding was uh, the involvement of all of the states, Germany, Poland, Denmark, which controls, owns uh, Bornem Island, uh, Sweden, and uh, the NATO states, including Britain and the Ukraine. They're all involved in the war against Russia. This was one of the operations of the war against Russia. And the Russian line, the Russian announcement, and the evidence indicates that Anglo-Saxons conducted the operation. By Anglo-Saxons, the Russian side has included the British, the uh, United States, and other powers. In Hirsch's initial report, the one that launched the Hirsch story, he refers to a group of US Navy divers and Norwegian military Navy and Secret Service uh, associates and uh, as the operators of the placement of uh, explosive on the pipelines, three of which uh, detonated properly, a fourth of which did not. He claims it was an all-American operation. But if you read carefully what he says and then what he says in an interview, he admits that there were other states, not simply Norway. Why does he insist 
on this was an a big US operation. And that's the second story. That's the motive of the source. It's the reason that Hirsch is so convinced of his own story. He wishes to minimize the role of all the other powers. Do you want to know why? Do we want to know why? Is it relevant? Well, if, we're, if all we're concerned about is that the United States led this operation, announced it in advance, then participated in the blow, the strike, the action, if that's all we're interested in, Hirsch has done a service. If, however, we want to look carefully at what Hirsch is not saying, error of omission, error of commission, then we come to something that's kind of serious in an entirely different way. And that's the role of the CIA behind Hirsch well, feeding well, this story. Yeah, and this is where it gets into sort of the, there's the famous or uh, familiar term, uh, limited hangout, that maybe not everybody is familiar with. Is this what you're talking about? Hirsch acting as a kind of, well, first, could you say what a limited hangout is? And then if, if you think this is what Hirsch's role is in this? Limited hangout. I'm old enough to uh, remember limited hangout was the expression uh, first popularized during the attempt by President Nixon to ward off the Watergate scandal uh, that eventually led to his resignation. The limited hangout is, if you Google it or Wikipedia look at it, is, is considered a, a term of espionage work, spy work, spy talk. Uh, it means that in order to disguise or keep concealed a central truth, you let out some little ones that look credible, but cause the viewer, the audience, your target, a parliament, for example, a law court, that keep divert their attention away from the central truth, which you hope to conceal and protect. Limited hangout is limited because you only let a little bit of the truth out. Hangout is part of, is a disguise. A limited hangout Hirsch has himself indulged in when you look at his interviews or listen to them, and I've tried to listen to them very carefully with giving him all the benefit of all the doubt. What he says as a limited hangout when asked, uh, for example, uh, about the role of Denmark and Sweden, he says, uh, that uh, they knew what was going on, but the Norwegians didn't want to brief them in detail, and that he is allowing that the D Danes and the Swedes also participated and had knowing participation in operation, but he's not interested in asking them to comment. Instead, he says, I telephoned the Norwegian embassy in Washington, and I didn't get a reply. This is a nonsense, no professional journalist would ever dare to report such a dead-end attempt to confirm anything, let alone the Norwegian involvement. Uh, but there's more to than limited hangout. Hirsch has also been asked in one of the interviews to comment directly, directly on the Russian statement that the British were involved. To go back a bit, 
60 seconds, roughly 60 seconds after the detonation, there is convincing evidence that Elizabeth Truss, then the Prime Minister of England, SMSed uh, Secretary of State Blinken to say, uh, it's done. I, I haven't got the words exactly in front of me, but I believe she uh, that the message was, it's done. How did she know 60 seconds after the event? Uh, the evidence, and it's not the only evidence, is that the British were deeply involved in training, preparation, and planning of this uh, subsea operation. When asked directly, Hirsch was asked about the British role, he first said, no, it was an American operation. Then he admitted the British were the first in the water. He admitted that the British had greater skill underwater in this sort of operation than the US Navy uh, divers of Navsea command. Uh, he contra was contradicting himself in writing and contradicting himself in the interview itself. Well, is it, po is it possible, though, John, that when he said that he was talking about they were the first in the water when because his story is, is that these charges were set and there was a, a remote uh, device attached to it so that it could be triggered remotely, that they were perhaps the first in the water to witness what had happened, not necessarily that, not necessarily that they laid the charges, but that they were acting a, as a, a bird dog to see that this thing went off as planned. And then they, you know, trust, they told trust and trust did what she did. Is that a possibility? Yes, certainly it's a possibility. So is the other one that the, that the British and the Ukrainian, using Ukrainian divers, planted the explosives weeks or months in June under cover, uh, June 2022, under cover of the so-called Baltic exercise known as Baltops, planted the explosives in such a way as they could be uh, triggered remotely at a later date. It's possible, your scenario is possible, Chris. Uh, the alternative scenario is possible that, that the bird dogs in this operation, operationally, were the United States. There's some evidence that uh, that Hirsch's account of a Norwegian aircraft overflying to send the signal to detonate, uh, that that aircraft was not a Norwegian one, it was a US one, and it flew over after the detonation. All of these possibilities are genuinely worth investigating. Well, why, why, then, why then would Trust feel that it was, that she had to inform the Americans of something Claim credit would have already easy, known. Easy claim credit. That's her high five then, and hey, it's done, hooray. Not like, hey, I'll let, I'm letting you know that it's done kind of a thing. Uh, it's a high five for a, a prime minister very new in office. And very eager, and very eager to please, too, apparently. Again, if you've just tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. I'm speaking today with John Helmer. John's a journalist and author. He is the principal behind the web news site Dances with Bears. He's the author of Scripball in Prison, The Man Who Knows Too Much About Russia, The Jackal's Wedding, American Power, Arab Revolt, and his latest is Australian Fascism, How It destroyed the courts we're talking about well it's the it's the big issue now but john was on top of it uh, pretty early on uh, dissecting uh, the famous american reporter seymour hirsch and with his article what's wrong with the hirsch report on the nord stream 
attacks. So, so John, one thing about Seymour uh, Hirsch's writings is he, we mentioned the the term limited hangout, which is sort of a spy crafty kind of term, although it's become popularized now. But in his writings, Hirsch uses a lot of this. Not only that, he says we a lot, like, well, we knew we had to do this and we knew, you know, like he's on the team, you know, which is it, journalism 101. You don't make yourself the story and you don't uh, take sides. You know, and I, I'm really surprised somebody of his experience would make two of mistakes that any fledgling coming out of a J school would, would be loath to make. And, and, and I'm not saying that unfairly. I mean, that's just what he does. And I don't, I, I think it's a, a mistake on his part, but there's another term that he uses and, and it comes up in your article too, when, when he talks about uh, sanctions uh, as, uh, in, the, in the context of who is responsible uh, for this. And he says that, um, that he quotes, he talks about sanctions and he says, Nord Stream 2 has been sanctioned by Germany. It's been stopped by your country, not internationally. And this was something he said in an interview with a German uh, reporter. And I'm curious to know, it just seems rather strange to me. Does that make any sense? Let's be fair to journalism. Let's be fair to Hirsch. Journalism is a collective operation, unlike a single book in which the author gets to say, thanks to this one, thanks to that one. Journalism is an ongoing, short-term, cumulative job of bringing out the truth piece by piece. And the great advantage of internet publishing is that you can add to, subtract, correct, fix, make a mistake, apologize, etc., etc., collectively on the internet in response to readers and audience and other professionals. Hirsch insists that he's the star, that the New York Times is his alma mater, the star. I read it as a dumb mistake. Everybody should understand if they've studied this project. Hirsch says it was fact-checked over and over at New Yorker standard. His idea of fact-checking is the New Yorker. That's ridiculous now. Under Remnick as editor, under the Gessens, Masha and Keith, the New Yorker is as much a propaganda mouth organ as the New York Times or the Financial Times or the Murdoch Press. With the Murdoch Press, uh, Hirsch criticizes. I took it as a dumb mistake, meaning Hirsch knew too little about the history of the sanctions war since 2014, since MH17 was shot down. He knows too little to understand that that the attempt to stop Nord Stream started as economic sanctions imposed by the United States and by the European Union, of which Germany was a member and Germany complied. But if you're saying the way to read what he said was he was echoing a source, but which brings us back to the point, who is Hirsch's source. It's not important who his name is. We're not trying to get behind the blind attribution. We are trying to get behind. And this is something something Hirsch ought to be able to respond to. And if not him, his uh, journalistic chorus of support in London and in Washington. What is the role of the CIA in providing this analysis 
because Hirsch quotes them as saying they were part of the process of the operation. They loyally discharged the president's order, but they were, his words, horrified, appalled. And then out comes a CIA analysis, which Hearst seems to endorse, that this attack on Germany impoverishes Germany, makes Germans cold, and will ultimately lead to uh, the, this I'm quoting from Hirsch, the rise of right-wing anti-Americanism in Europe. That's, that's Hirsch talking from a source that's not a naval source. It's not a Norwegian diver. It's not somebody from a Navseed diver. Um, Hirsch keeps calling them miners. That's a slip. Uh, from Panama City in Florida. This is the CIA talking. Now, there's no proof, and one doesn't. There is simply circumstantial evidence, and better than the John Kerry standard, that Hirsch, either knowingly or Hirsch unwittingly, is running a story that's aimed at preserving US influence and power in Europe without the detractions of this operation. And the blame for that should fall politically. The blame he points to is Biden, Blinken, Newland, and Sullivan. And that could very well mean a kind of deep state uh, scheme to replace them in the run-up to the 2024 presidential election. Let's call it, for want of a better term, a deep state plot for the presidential election of the United States. And that would more deeply trouble the journalism profession because it makes it a, 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 an accomplice of, of an yet another presidential campaign plot. Well, and those people you mentioned, uh, Sullivan and Newland and Blinken, were, and Biden himself and his son, by extension, were all involved uh, at the time of the Maidan Square coup that overthrew the uh, democratically elected government in place at the time and began uh, Ukraine's long descent over these last many years into war and, and disaster. Uh, you write about in, a, in another piece, and this accompanies your interview on or your back and forth with George Eliasson, who's in Donetsk, War of the Worlds on TNT Radio, as a piece, uh, Seymour Hirsch defends CIA in plot to attack Biden re-election. Hirsch also attacks investigative journalists with his own plot to feed them crumbs. Well, he's also, John, on his um, Substack site, uh, come out with an apologia, or, well, maybe that's unfair, but he's, he's come out uh, with a piece called The Crap on the Wall, and he begins by saying, well, this is in response to all the critics that he has. Not necessarily, I, I think probably more the kind of criticism that you've been leveling about his methods than those uh, uh, allies of Biden that are just trying to bring him down on his personality or whatever. Uh, but um, it's behind a paywall. So it's the crap on the paywall because I didn't pay. So I only read the first paragraph of it. But when you talk about her saying that he was feeding crumbs to journalists, it, it doesn't sound, it, it sounds kind of condescending for one thing, but wh what does he mean by that? And, and what is, is this another limited, another way of employing a limited hangout? Because it sounded a lot to me like the way uh, the CIA treat 
journalists where they give them a few little crumbs and lead them into a direction where that they want them to go. I think you're right. I'll just quote you his words. I've got behind the paywall uh, Johnson's Russia list uh, last Saturday um, republished the entire crap on the wall article. The problem is, of course, whose crap is on whose wall in this particular story. But perhaps listeners have had enough of listening to journalists um, polishing their own asses. Uh, what... Uh, <laughs> What Seymour Hirsch actually said was in the interview with his German interviewer, Fabian Scheidler, we left enough breadcrumbs for them to be able to write as a couple already have. Oh, this couldn't have happened because. And then he goes on a bit and concludes, so we took care of them. That is more than condescending. It reflects an attitude that government officials have towards journalists and how easy it is to deceive them. Let me make a confession here, Chris. I too have been a US government official and not only the US government. And I can tell you that the higher you go in a government, not just the US government, the more contempt, and I use the word advisedly, you have for so-called leading journalists of your capital. Why? Because as government officials, you have to study the papers. You have to listen to all the options. You have to argue with your friends, your associates, your factional adversaries. You engage in a process of testing the evidence uh, materially, economically, in budget terms, and in political terms versus your parliament. The US Congress is the obvious target in the United States. But as an official of the US government, I can tell you I had engagement with one of the most famous legendary journalists in the Washington Post at the time, now dead, David Broder. When I was a, a, a US Office of Management budget official, uh, and pointing out to David, whom we, whom I'd known for years before he, uh, he became legendary and I became an official, um, to try to point out that he'd made a mistake about how the US budget system works. And he reacted so negatively to what I thought was goodwill and with a well-intentioned advice. He hung up on me and we never spoke again. From that little episode, I promised myself I'll never ring up a journalist I know to try to advise them that they need to read the papers and not necessarily listen to a single source to run a story that they think will capture with their byline, the front page. Um, that kind of star journalism is what government officials rely on. That's what the breadcrumbs are intended to feed the hamsters. They're hamsters. That's what government officials think of journalists because they're either too untrained to understand a, a corporate balance sheet or something as complex as the United States budget, they rely instead on a voice, on a source. And they uh, that's the way all government officials that I've in, uh, ex experienced in my lifetime of government service and journalism think of journalists. I tried to improve on matters when I ran a university graduate course in teaching investigative journalism to start 
the, 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 the novices with the understanding that they've got two problems. One is their proprietors will sack them if they get too close to a truth the proprietor doesn't like. And second, their sources in government will lie to them because they think they're lazy and stupid and untrained. Between those two hard rocks, journalism, investigative journalism, truth journalism, has a hard, hard life to run, and it rarely produces legends and heroism. But that's the stuff of which money is made. The star system that Hirsch believes in, the New York Times star system, is totally discreditable and discredited. John, we're fast out of time. Now, you can go to John's website, johnhelmer.net, and order his book, The Lie That Shot Down MH17, and his other books as well. For, for now, John, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'll look forward to the spongy moth next. <laughs>